Picture this. It's 1994 and you're Alec Berg and you've just been hired to be a writer for Seinfeld, the biggest television show on the planet. It's time to write your first episode. You spend hours and hours crafting each and every beat, each and every joke, and then you hand the script to Seinfeld showrunner Larry David. We gave it to Larry, and Larry was going over to a rehearsal, and so Larry walked over to the stage with the script in his hand, and we kind of followed behind him because we wanted to watch him read this thing. I want to see his face. I want to see how he's reacting. He read the whole thing in like two minutes. And we were like, what's, what's he doing? He's not savoring our gems. But I realize now, having done this for 25 years, what he was doing, which is he was just reading it for structure. This is Showrunners, the podcast where we interview the people behind the greatest TV shows on air right now. I'm Nicholas Carlson, editor-in-chief of Insider. Along with Mike Judge, Alec Berg is the showrunner for HBO's Silicon Valley. Alec has had an amazing career. He got his start on Conan O'Brien, then he was hired onto Seinfeld and worked there for its last four seasons. Then he took a break and made a few movies. And then he ended up on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And now he's running Silicon Valley. We talked to Alec about what he learned from Larry David. We talked about how to break into the industry. We talked about the differences between film and television and why he's chosen to make TV his home. I started my conversation with Alec by asking him how he was drawn to comedy in the first place. I grew up listening to my parents' comedy records. A lot of the stuff that, instead of listening to a lot of music, I was listening to, you know, when I was eight years old, I could do two and a half hours of Bill Cosby, Word Perfect. I didn't see the writing on the wall where that was headed. Steve Martin was the other guy that I listened to every every second of, of his stuff. I don't know why I was interested in comedy. It was just like, there's something about, it's weird, it's almost like a magic power in a weird way. You can say a combination of words and you cause convulsions in other people. It's, you know, it's the closest thing I think we have to sort of wizardry. Do you remember first showing that and feeling that? People being, oh, they're laughing. I have one weird snippet of memory. I was probably like in second grade of saying something and a girl in my class started laughing. And I do remember thinking, oh, that's that's cool. I did that. I just sort of went from there and I ended up going to college and I worked on, I went to Harvard and I, I worked on the Harvard Lampoon. So I found a lot of sort of like-minded comedy misfits there. A couple of which I worked with for years. Jeff Schaefer and I moved out to LA after college to try and write. We lived in a literally flea infested apartment with no furniture. And, you know, we spent a few months just kind of calling people and trying to meet anybody that would tolerate us for 15 minutes. And that led to a tiny thing, which led to another thing, which led to another thing and eventually we started making a living. I read about this. I read that you, somewhere you said that you used to call people and just say, can I have 15 minutes of your time? Uh, did you call it just everybody? Who'd you call? Yeah, anybody. I mean, anybody we could think of. People always ask me like, you know, well, how do I break in and whatever. And, and to me, the one sort of guiding principle of all of it is just honestly, don't be an asshole. That's like the simplest advice you can give. Like, you know, people will send me scripts sometimes. And they're like, hey, here's a draft of the script. Can you read it? Can you give me notes? And then can you send it to your agent? And I go, well, let me start with reading it. And usually on page one, there's about six typos, you know, and it's sort of like, okay, you've asked me for an enormous amount of my time and you want me to read something carefully that you clearly can't be bothered to read carefully yourself. It always seemed pretty simple to me that it's like people are busy and if you're polite and deferential and you ask for a manageable amount of their time, how do they say no to that? What was your playbook? I mean, what was, you know, when you wanted someone to talk to you, what did you say to them? We, Jeff and I would reach out and just say, hey, we're enormous fans. We know you're busy. 
can we buy you coffee? Can we bend your ear for 10 minutes and just kind of ask you how you did it and if you have any thoughts for us? You know, we'd try and go and make somebody laugh for 10 or 15 minutes. And, you know, that ended up, we, we met with these two guys, Tom Gamble and Max Pross, and we got to know them. And eventually they got a show on, it was one of the first shows that they put on Fox. And we got friendly with them. And, and when their show got picked up, they said, hey, we're buying some freelance scripts. If you pitch us some ideas, maybe we can buy a script from you. And Jeff and I worked for like two weeks straight, and we went in with just a massive of very thoroughly thought out stuff. You know, I think we, you know, we worked probably 200 hours on, you know, this one pitch. It was kind of shock and awe of comedy writing. Uh, and they bought a script from us. So that was the first job we ever got. Did you ever get very harsh feedback from anyone? Usually the way it works is you just don't hear anything back. That's something that comedy and tech have in common, that the personalities are very awkward and, you know, there aren't a lot of unbelievably confident and poised comedy writers. So I think if somebody's going to deliver bad news, generally they just don't call. I think I read somewhere Conan O'Brien show was the one that people were like, oh, that was the big break for... For Alec Bird. Yeah, that was, well, I, I, we, Jeff Schaefer and I moved to LA in 92 and we were kind of kicking around out here for a couple of years. We got, we had limited sort of sitcom success. So we ended up going to Conan for a few months, uh, which was great. And it was, it was in the dawn of the Conan show when it was exhilarating because we were doing five <laughs> hours a week, you know, and every night there was probably 15 or 20 minutes of produced comedy. So we were producing, you know, whatever, more an hour, hour and a half of material a week, which just meant if you had even the slightest inkling of an idea, it got on the air, you know, because it was just this, this carnivorous beast that ate material and anything you could fling at it would go on. Um, so in that sense, it was exhilarating. You know, it was like we were always behind and, you know, you'd, you'd write the bits the night before. You'd stay up till one or two in the morning and you'd have some kind of a, you know, a kernel of an idea and you'd leave voicemails for the casting people and the costume and hair and makeup people and the set people. And then you'd go home and sleep for a couple hours and you'd come back in at 9 a.m. and you'd produce whatever you had written. You'd give direction to everyone and, and then you'd be rehearsing it at 1.30 or 2 and then you'd shoot it in front of a live audience at 5.30. So just in terms of like comedy school, it was amazing training. It was insane. I mean, you're literally running around 30 Rock at 3 in the morning trying to edit something. When did you feel like th that that you were not someone bre breaking in anymore but someone who had a job? That was when we got hired at Seinfeld. That was that felt like sort of being made in the mafia. That was a uh, because that that show had we got Jeff and I got there for the last we were there for the last four seasons of that show. So we were there for just over half the episodes. But the show had moved from Wednesday to Thursday night. It was basically the number one. We were number one or number two every week. It was us and Home Improvement that would sort of you know trade off. You joined the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was you know it was basically the number one show ever. And it had just kind of arrived in that space when we got on. My uh, my wife's grandfather, he was, you know, he's this very conservative uh, World War II vet, but loved Seinfeld and loved quoting it. And just Seinfeld, if you go back, and it's like, it's sort of surprising that how much of America was kind of like into this show. 
it makes no sense. Like it's such a niche show in a weird way. I mean, it's such a it's a very kind of like for narcissistic New Yorkers. It's not. It doesn't seem like it's an all American story at all. And yet that it had such a clear voice. And it was it was incredibly funny. And I do think that Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld kind of brought in a new style of storytelling, which was you know the stories were much more dense. They were very intertwined and there was no sappiness. There was no sentiment. There was no, you know, typically almost every sitcom up to that point and many since then were essentially morality plays. A character's faced with the right choice or the easy choice and they take the easy choice and something bad happens and then they apologize and they learn from their mistake and, you know, in the end, they make amends with whoever they've wronged. And, you know, there's a learning moment and then there's a joke. But Seinfeld, there was no, you know, they always said no hugging, no learning. Like it was <laughs> characters act on their basest, most petty instincts for self gain. They get caught. They lie. They dig themselves in deeper. They get caught again. They lie or blame someone else. And in the end, the entire thing blows up and they're miserable. It was a very different style than anybody had done up to that point. And we were doing a lot more scenes. You know, Cheers, I think, as a rule, used to do, I want to say it was four scenes in the first act and three scenes in the second act or something like that. And that was just the structure of the show. And sometimes we would do 26, 27 scenes in a 21 and a half minute show. How does Larry David work? He was the, the hub of the wheel writing-wise. Jerry was enormously involved, but Jerry was also on stage a lot of the time rehearsing and performing. So Larry was the guy who, when Jerry was on stage, Larry was in the office in the engine room making the scripts work. The way that show worked, it's interesting. And, and Dave Mandel, who is now running Veep, runs Veep in a similar way. There was no writer's room on that show. It was essentially like the old studio system where the writers all had offices and they were all kind of working on their own things. And you would wander the halls and chat with the other writers and say, oh, what do you got? Oh, you have that story. That's funny. You know, maybe we could do something with that same character. But everybody was working on their own episodes. And you would pitch ideas to Larry and Jerry and they would say, I like that. Or, you know, oh, maybe that could be an Elaine thing instead of a Kramer thing. And essentially you'd try and come up with four stories, one for each of the four characters. And then you'd start the comedy geometry of trying to sort of weave those stories together. And you'd start at the beginning and we had whiteboards in our office and you'd just say, okay, this is the first beat of that story. Maybe that could be in the same scene as the first beat of this story. And then you try and combine and, and thicken the stories. You know, oh, George is fighting with a guy and Elaine is dating a guy. Maybe that could be the same guy. And then it's, oh, that could give us a scene where George and Elaine are at each other because George wants this and Elaine wants that. And you would start kind of laying out the episode and you'd get a first act and you'd bring Larry and Jerry into your office and you'd show them the whiteboard and you'd kind of walk them through the beats and they would say okay that's four scenes but that should be one scene that should happen sooner and you would kind of compact and compact and compact and eventually you'd get through two acts of of the show and they'd say great write a draft and you would write your own draft of that and there was no sitting around a table doing any of that it was all done by yourself and it really taught me 
I think a lot of writers who grow up in sitcom rooms don't really ever become true writers because I think it's it's easy to just sort of pitch into the process. But until you have to sit in a room and be wholly responsible for every beat of the story and a draft, you know, you don't have to do all the work. I think there are probably sitcom writers who are just joke people or story people or people who have a certain strength or people who just are in a room and they make everybody else feel good about what's happening. It's much more of a team sport. But working at Seinfeld, you really had to you had to do everything on an episode. And then you'd hand in a draft. Usually they would give you some notes on the draft and you would do a rewrite of it and then you'd hand it back to them and then Larry and Jerry would do a pass in their office. But there was never that sit around the table and let's all go to work thing. What were what were Larry's like notes? What were his go-to notes? You know, it's funny, I remember Jeff and I the first script we wrote was an episode called The Gymnast where Jerry dates this Romanian gymnast and we'd slaved over every line, every word, every nuance. We gave it to Larry and Larry was going over to a rehearsal and so Larry walked over to the stage with the script in his hand and we kind of followed behind him because we wanted to watch him read this thing and you know like I want to see his face, I want to see how he's reacting and I remember he he picked it up at one point and we were kind of spying on him and he read the whole thing in like two minutes. <laughs> and he didn't, you know, pause to let any of our clever wordplay, you know, sit on his tongue in any any pleasing way. But I realize now, having done this for 25 years, what he was doing, which is he was just reading it for structure, right? Which is what happens. Okay, they do this, they do that. Uh, I don't know if I'm buying that, maybe, you know, and he just was reading it to make sure that each beat flowed and each character was doing the right thing in the right place because and this is what I learned from him more than anything and Curb is exactly the same thing and in fact on Curb we didn't even write dialogue really we just wrote an outline that was just the structure what happens and there's a few jokes in it but the story itself on those shows is the comedy right it's not here's this boring morality play where somebody makes uh, amends with the person they've wronged and there are jokes on top of it the story itself and it's you know if you go back to your favorite Seinfeld episodes they're all the one where this happens or the one where that happens and the what happens is the comedy as opposed to it's a sort of straight story with comedy put on top it reminds me of the the and I've tried it I'm like at a loss for his name but there's that one of those novelists that you always see in the grocery store in the airports and he writes 70 books a year because he has a team of writers and apparently yeah. he lies he lies on a daybed overlooking the Hudson and he just writes out scenes like uh, you, you you meet the Smiths uh, husband and wife it's clear that they like each other and you know and like yeah. and so he just hands those notes and then someone else does the actual like whatever but he's he's moving on he's got the story down and that's something that I you know look Larry David essentially taught me how to write and it is like if you know who your characters are and you know who's in a scene and what they want and what happens next I don't want to say the scenes write themselves but it's much much easier and sometimes when you're working on something and it's hard to write a scene, sometimes that's telling you something. That, okay, maybe the structure's not right. It's not that executing this scene is difficult, it's that the scene's not right. The next big thing on the IMDb, and maybe I'm missing something, tell me if I am, please, but it, Curb, Curb Your Enthusiasm, it seems like that on HBO? Or yeah, well, we, we were at Seinfeld, and after the first year Jeff and I were there, we lured Dave from New York, so Dave Mandel came over as well. And after Seinfeld, we all signed these TV development deals where they pay you a bunch of money to just pitch one company exclusively. But it was a weird time in the TV business, without getting too in the weeds, 
up until that time, networks weren't allowed to own their own shows. Those laws had been relaxed. And so now networks who had all looked at independent production companies like Castle Rock, who had Seinfeld and had made billions of dollars off of it, the networks all thought, well, we want that money, so we're only going to put shows on our air that we own. And unfortunately, Jeff and I had signed a deal with DreamWorks TV, which was an independent production company, and the economics just turned over in a year or two. And we would go into these pitches, and the people we were pitching to at networks were like, yeah, that idea is fine, but we can't buy it from you because we're only putting shows on the air that we own. And of course, they would deny that, and they would say, no, 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 we just want the best shows. Right, that's why 24 of the 25 shows you have on the air are owned by you. And during that time, because we weren't getting any TV shows on the air, Jeff and Dave and I, we started doing a bunch of movie work because movie work wasn't covered under the terms of our TV deals. Um, so we started doing a bunch of little rewrites and, and it was easy to get these kind of like, you know, one week gigs because people wanted Seinfeld writers to write clever dialogue. And we started kind of learning the, the movie business. And in that window is when we wrote and then ended up directing a movie that ended up being called Eurotrip. The reason we ended up directing that movie is because TV is driven by volume. Network shows are 22 episodes a year. Somebody's got somebody's to generate all of that. And it ends up being the writer who has a lot more control creatively in TV. And in movies, because you've got just this one thing that you make over the course of a year or two, writers are much more expendable and the director is the one who has all the control in movies because they're the ones that have to make the decisions about casting and tone and how's it going to be shot and how's it going to be edited. And so when we transitioned from TV, where we had had a lot of control, when we got into movies and we would write screenplays and they would go, thank you very much. And we'd go, well, we have some thoughts about how that should be made. And they go, yeah, we're not interested in that. And we realized, oh, we have to be directors. So we ended up writing the script. It was called Ugly Americans when we sold it, which I still contend is a much better title than Eurotrip. We sold that with the condition that we could direct it. How'd you like directing? It's pretty terrifying. And you understand why people who are sort of, you know, megalomaniacs are very well suited to being movie directors because it's a completely subjective, creative endeavor. And you've got 150 people turning to you saying, okay, what do you want to do? How do you want to do this? If you're riddled with self-doubt, you start to crater. So the people who are like, I know what to do. I'm touched by God and I have a gift. Like they're very well suited to that, that job. And I also understand why people are screamers and throw tantrums because it's, it, there's an enormous amount of insecurity and it's a way of venting a lot of that. You're persistent. You had a great resume. You're, you could have kept doing a lot of that instead of the avenue you went down. Is there a reason? Do you feel like it's not for you or? You know, the movie business was really hard. Like it's, and Eurotrip as an example, you know, I spent a year plus of my life working on that movie. And look, I just, we just did a, a 10th anniversary screening of the movie uh, and I hadn't seen it in 10 years. And it's the movie we wanted to make. I could quibble about the how they marketed it or the whatever. The times changed between when we started shooting it and when they released it and it didn't hit the way we wanted to. But creatively, I would say it was a it was a reasonable success and I learned a ton. But you spend two years all in on a movie and then Thursday at five o'clock they call you and tell you whether it it worked or not. And they know like from the first Thursday screenings of the opening weekend, whether you've made a bomb or a hit or somewhere in between. And that's it. Like it's binary. Part of 
what I love about TV is, you know, TV is much more about batting average. You get a lot of at-bats, and some you, you get doubles or triples, and some you strike out, but it's about average. Week in and week out, if you do a good job, that show will live. Whereas movies, you can make a great movie. You know, there I read reviews of Ghost in the Shell, which just came out. People seem to love that movie. It tanked. What happened? I don't know. But then there are movies which I'm not going to pick on any, but there are movies that are terrible that are big hits. And so that kind of randomness of the movie business is terrifying, right? Whereas TV in general, I will say shows that become hits are shows that find an audience and continue to please them week in and week out. As a writer, you have much more creative control of those. I mean, I think it's why you look at, you know, people keep talking about we're in the golden age of TV right now. Those sort of adult smart movies aren't working because people are staying home and watching smart adult TV shows. And a lot of people who were in the movie business, a lot of those people have migrated to high-end TV because you can get creative fulfillment and you can tell the stories. You know, True Detective, that first season was incredible. That, I think, worked as well as the feature version of something like that would have worked. Curb, how'd that happen? Jeff and Dave and I had done Eurotrip. We, uh, we were looking for office space and we called Larry David and Larry had offices in a building here in LA called Lantana and we were looking at maybe renting office space in that building. So we called him to see how he liked the space. And he said, you know, actually I have one empty office in my suite of offices. You guys can have that office if you don't mind me coming in and bugging you while I'm writing the next season of Curb. And we said, we'd love to help out on that, sure. So he basically gave us a free office in exchange for you know coming in and bugging us a few times a day. And at first he would come in once a day for two minutes. And then I think, you know, he just liked having somebody to talk to. And, you know, he was sitting in his office, banging his head against the wall, writing the season. And so he just kept coming in kind of more and more. So we ended up helping write season five of Curb. And, you know, we had no deal. We weren't being paid. We were just, it, we were squatters in his office. And you were, you were being paid through barter. <laughs> yeah, basically. We were, I mean, really, like he, you know, he kept us in a little cage and would come in and, and talk to us every once in a while. And we were completely happy with that. And then there was a funny thing that happened at the end of the year. We get a call from HBO Business Affairs and HBO says, you know, we'd like to pay you for your work on the season. And we were like, oh my God, we weren't expecting that. That's so nice. And they, they sent over the paperwork for 10 episodes of Curb. They offered us each $1,000. <laughs> and it turned out that what they wanted was a piece of paper that said they had purchased all of our work so that we couldn't ever sue them. <laughs> And we went from doing it out of just love of Larry and the show and a favor to being the worst paid comedy writers on earth. And it would have been so much better to not get paid a penny than to be paid $100 an episode. And then Larry came into our office one day and said, so um, production is going to need this office. And we're like, so we have to leave? And he goes, uh, yeah. We go, so what do we have, like a week or two? He goes, yeah, week or two. We're like, okay. Well, it's been fun. So he kicked us out. Um, but then the next year we came back and officially came on as writers on the show. And we ended up doing the subsequent three or four seasons. How did, how did, how had Larry uh, David evolved, you know, between those two periods or was he the same guy? Largely for better, but also sometimes for worse. Larry is exactly the same guy. If you knew him and liked him pre all of his success, you know him and like him now. And if you 
disliked him before all the success. I'm sure you would dislike him just as much now. He is literally exactly the same guy. He's utterly unchanged by all of the trappings. I remember he came into the office once when we were working and he was he was really annoyed because he had put lunch with him into some charity auction for the NRDC or something like that. And somebody from Ohio had paid like $50,000 at this charity auction to have lunch with him. And they had flown out just to have lunch with Larry. So it's this guy and like his wife and I think his two kids. And they had gone to lunch. And at the end of the lunch, the check showed up. And Larry was really annoyed that that guy didn't reach for the check. And we had a discussion about like, if you pay $50,000 to have lunch with somebody, that should include the lunch. And so of course, Larry should have to pay for it. He's like, well, I didn't say I would pay for it. What, I'm supposed to buy this guy lunch? That feels like that was in an episode. I mean, it's 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 the comedy of the show, which is obviously it's a lot of that. But I, the one thing I was thinking about when you were talking is that that's a show where you're watching and then it just starts to get really painful because the character is doing something just so horrible or something. And it's just it, the tension starts to build inside of you where it's funny, but it's also like very hard to watch in a way. Well, Curb was definitely like the most polarizing thing I ever worked on in terms of like, I would run into people who were just fanatical fans. But I also on Curb would run into a lot of people who would say, I can't watch that show. It makes me tense, it makes me nervous. It vibrates on a frequency. If you enjoy that comedy, like the comedy of discomfort and confrontation and Larry being a curmudgeon or whatever you want to call him, then it's great. But if you don't like that, it's like nails on a chalkboard. So HBO is probably paying you more than $100 an episode episode now slightly um, more yeah I'm, I'm amortizing yeah. the cost of those uh <laughs> those first curb episodes yeah you know how, how did how did silicon valley start i was back to doing movie stuff larry david had kind of put curb in dry dock for a bit and larry went off and you know we did this movie clear history with larry in lieu basically of doing a season of curb so we helped on that and then we were working on movie stuff and jeff schaefer started doing a show called the league and dave and i were doing some movie stuff and then i got a call from sue nagel who had been my agent for years and she had left the agent business to go to hbo she said hey we have this mike judge show that we're working on can you just take a look at the script and see... Basically what happened was they did the pilot, and I guess they wanted to go forward with the pilot, but they needed somebody to kind of come in and work in partnership with Mike to kind of make the trains run. And Mike's not a, you know, he's, he's not a professional sitcom writer who can run a room and all that stuff, just not his passion. I sat down with Mike and we really hit it off. And, and I said, you know, I had a few thoughts about the pilot. I'd be happy to tell you. And he goes, yeah, please, whatever, whatever you think. And we started talking about it and, and about what the series would be. And we got along great. And Sue basically said, do you want to come work on this show? And I had been thinking more and more about TV just because we had been doing movie stuff. I jumped over the two years of my life that was The Dictator with Sasha Baron Cohen. And I had done the math that my daughter at the time was 10 and I had missed an entire year of her life being away on sets. And so getting back into TV that shoots in LA was like, look, I can work full time here and I can sleep in my own bed and I can see my family. So I ended up taking the gig. So that that show, my my first feelings about it, you know that sensation where you knew the band and then everyone knows the band and it kind of makes you mad almost? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I covered tech for years and years and years. 
And all of a sudden it's like, wait, hold on a second, everybody uh, laughing about Silicon Valley. So I think that's a credit to like the to the realism of the of the program. We actually when we were just starting out, there was a show on Amazon called Betas. And actually, their production offices were the floor above our production offices when we were first starting out. So there was this weird thing of like, are we too late? Are they going to be the show that everybody you know, wants to watch about tech. And I'm, I'm happy to report we outlasted them. Mike will actually say he felt like we were a few years too late and maybe we had missed the curve on doing a show about tech, but it is a, an incredibly fertile area. And, you know, when I was doing The Dictator, we would just do a lot of research about dictators. There's a Barbet Schroeder documentary about Idi Amin that has about 10 things in it where you just can't believe you're seeing this. And it's tragic, but it's also hilarious how insane it is. There was this guy in Turkmenistan whose doctors told him to quit smoking, so he made smoking illegal in the country. You know, and you read about stuff like that, and it's the research leads to, oh my God, that's crazy, and the stuff in real life is crazier than anything you could come up with that's pretend. We started to feel the same way about the tech business, and that's why I think early on we kind of made this decision to hew very closely to reality. What goes into the credit sequence? I mean, th uh, the FBI agents kind of showing up at Theranos. This is a fun one this year. Yeah, yeah. And we did a thing where, you know, the, the Uber, there's an Uber balloon that inflates. And now we have Uber and Lyft bumping into each other. It's interesting how much scrutiny every frame of our show gets. You know, we just released a trailer for the upcoming season. And I was looking in the, the comments on YouTube and there were a bunch of people sort of guessing, whoa, I look at the board there, look at the deck, I paused it and I read the slide and it looks like they're talking about this, so the story of this season must be this. Every every time there's a, a screen on screen and there's any code, people will pause it and there's always like a subreddit about the code and there are big debates about, well, that's the kind of code that Guilfoyle would write. No, I think Dinesh wrote that code because it's more his style. It's like the level of scrutiny that every frame of our show gets. I mean, it's terrifying, but it's also awesome. People always joke about the coding on screen. You know, what do you put? Because I remember Mark Zuckerberg, or not Mark Zuckerberg, but uh, what's his name? The actor drawing on a gla on a window <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the Sorkin movie. Uh, is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it, just, it, it seems like it's a lot of over-the-shoulder shots. It's... Yeah, well, I mean, and the amount of work that goes into those things, we have a huge team of technical advisors. We have coders, we have VCs, we have founders, we have lawyers. And the hope is that every single thing we render in any form feels completely real, which is a double-edged sword when you're writing the show, because sometimes you come up with something you fall in love with and you go to the technical people and you go, we thought this would happen. And they go, well, that would never happen. And it becomes sort of a negotiation in a weird way. You're like, you know, come on, please, can you justify this? And sometimes they go, well, I guess if you said it was this or that, and we go, okay, fine, we'll put that in. Like, what, what do we need to put in to make this real? One area where the show does map to, definitely, unfortunately, is like this idea that there's not a lot of female cast members in the show. There's not a lot of women in, in Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, this this season, I got, I got to see some of the screeners, and I could be wrong, but I always do the Bechdel test, and it felt like maybe it wasn't met until episode three. But do you guys think about that? or? Absolutely. No, no, no. Look, it's a, it's a, it is a constant discussion, and we have gotten a lot of scrutiny, and, and 
some flack, some deserved, some I think not so, about where are the women and why aren't you doing more stories about how there are no women in tech. And, you know, look, we go back and forth on it a lot, and we do put a lot of thought into it. Like, if there aren't more women and more stories about women in tech in the show, it's not out of, I think, gender bias or or some misogyny. For us, it's about, we just haven't, it's a failure of us as satirists that we haven't figured out more interesting ways of satirizing and making comedy hay out of those issues. But the idea that we should somehow portray the tech business as it should be, as opposed to how it is, I think is is horseshit. What good do we serve by, like if the show was just 50% women, what good are we doing? We're just masking. I mean, like part of the point of satire is to point out the flaws in reality. And look, Season one, at the end of the season, the guys go to TechCrunch Disrupt. We went up to the real TechCrunch Disrupt and we brought cameras with us and we shot some footage, which ended up in the show. At the end of the first season, I showed a few episodes to a friend of mine, a woman who works in tech, and she said, you gotta put more women in this show. Those crowd shots that you created at TechCrunch Disrupt are crazy. There's no women in those. You didn't put any women in those. And I said, those are real. We shot those at the actual TechCrunch Disrupt, and we didn't frame the women out. There were no women in the room. So do we have a responsibility to fake the tech business as a more gender-inclusive place, or is our role to hold up a mirror to it and hopefully satirize and make jokes about it? Like, you know, you can debate whether we've done a good job of satirizing it or not, but the idea that we have a duty to sort of portray it as something that it's not, I think is wrong-headed. And I think we can do a hell of a lot more to, you know, look, we're not a social justice show and we don't have a, you know, we're not here to right the wrongs of society. We're comedians. And at a certain point, we're trying to just make something that's funny and entertaining. And if it's enlightening and and pokes people to change their ways, great. But that's not our goal. There's one show that's sort of, in, it's very different, but also similar in some ways for me, which is Billions on Showtime. Do you ever watch that show? I don't. Okay. <laughs> Brian Koppelman and Dave Levine, the guys who run that show, are friends of mine. It's just one of those shows that I've been meaning to get to, and I just haven't. I highly recommend it. And what, what they what they do that's similar is it's it's a fictional version of a specific niche in the, in business, and you're watching and you're like, oh, that's they're doing Steve Cohen right now. It's very obvious. So like you know, this season for example, in Billions, there's this this year the bad guy is doing the Peter Thiel move of uh, you know aggregating a lawsuit and all that. So do you do that? Sure. We generally do not. We try not to do kind of one to one corollaries, but we definitely are paying attention to all the kind of the. I mean, speaking of gender discrimination, the Ellen Powell thing, we were following closely. The Peter Thiel Gawker thing, you know, Trump. And his views of the H-1B visa, I think, are going to be very relevant to our show. Government controls, net neutrality, all of that stuff. Like, we're definitely paying attention to a lot of what's going on. But one of the challenges of our show is we're not, we can't really be topical because ideally the show is written before we shoot it and we shoot it months before it airs. If we get into something that's too topical, we run the risk of by the time the show airs, six other people have done commentary on it, you know, and it feels kind of stale. So we have to be careful to kind of amalgamate a lot of these stories. And, you know, like Gavin Belson has facets of a lot of these titans in him, but he's not a one-for-one of any particular person. Like, at the end of season one, a lot of people were saying, like, oh, Peter Gregory, that's Peter Thiel. And the honest answer is, 
we didn't even really know who Peter Thiel was when we did season one. And then people kept saying, that's the Peter Thiel character. And we started looking at Peter Thiel video and we're like, oh, I can see why people are saying that. But it wasn't, there was no attempt to portray Peter Thiel on the show. We just kind of backed into that. Well, I see them all the time. I see like, oh, that's that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think if if anything, what we try and do is portray the types. So when we were talking about Seinfeld, we are, one of the things you sort of said is there's no hug and a lesson and yeah. the story doesn't. And without being sappy at all, this 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 show does have a story and it does have character development. It has feel like feels like people are going somewhere. Well, it's a different, this is a very different story structurally than anything I've ever worked on because it's so serialized. And it's also... I mean, for better or for worse, it's a show about people who have a specific goal and are they going to reach it or not? And it's not episodic the way Seinfeld was where every episode was essentially a reset, right? I mean, this is, we're doing sort of a a comedy laid on top of a drama in terms of the structure. It also makes it increasingly difficult to write the show because you have to let the characters succeed to an extent or people are just gonna get frustrated, right? Like we always joke, it's like Lucy and the football with Charlie Brown. It's like, eventually people are just gonna go, you know what, I'm tired of watching these guys just get kicked in the teeth every week, I'm done. So we have to allow them their successes. And also if they don't ever succeed, at a certain point it just makes you think, well, maybe they're just stupid and they don't deserve it. But at the, the flip side of that is, we always talk about how this is a show about outsiders. And if the Bad News Bears win the championship, they're not the Bad News Bears anymore. They're just the Bears. And is that interesting to watch? You know, and every once in a while, we'll start off a season going, oh, yeah, they succeeded at the end of the last season. Maybe we should just do a couple of episodes where they're flush and everything's going their way. And you sit down to try and write that episode and there's nothing there. There's no conflict. There's no adversity. There's no challenge. Like watching people win ultimately is fun for about a second, but there's no enduring joy to that. Well, what's, what's coming for the Silicon Valley folks is that the, a lot more losing because <laughs> it's going to be joy for the rest well, of us. Well, look, it's like, you know, uh, the analogy I guess that I've come closest to is it's sort of like if you're, you know, a rock band or something like, you know, each season is a new album and it's like you have to give people what they come for, but you have to give it to them in a new, interesting way where it's like some new area that they haven't explored. So you have to keep kind of iterating and changing it to make it feel new. But if you change it too much, you break it. And so people, like, I do get that a lot. Like, when are you going to let them win? I'm tired of watching them fail, which is true. But I think as soon as they win, you would be even more tired of it. You just go, well, where's the fun in that? I just have a note here, which is just Jared exclamation point. Yeah. I love I love watching him on screen. He's, he's, and Zach Woods, I would say, unfortunately for him, is probably the closest to his character in real life of all of them. He is a delightful knot of anxiety and he's, he's a, just a lovely human being and also probably one of the most skilled improvisers on the face of the planet. Really? Just incredible. And it's funny, a lot of his improv, you know, he used to throw these little things in about like, his, you know, how he was adopted and he had many foster parents and he improved a line in season one about his best friend, Gloria's granddaughter. And you just like the density of that. So his best friend is a grandmother, you know, and he always says he plays the... He plays the character as though he were uh, like a, a middle-aged or a, a slightly elderly woman. 
Like he's their he's their grandmother, basically. Is Big Head getting dumber every year? It seems like. It. Yeah, I mean, we have to figure that out. That is a that's a, a challenge of like you know, like I said, it's like you wanna you it has to be familiar, but you have to do familiar in an unfamiliar way. We're in danger of kind of going to the well a little too often with him. I think we have to figure out some new twist. I mean, we definitely are plowing new territory with him this year. Like he succeeds in ways that you didn't see coming. But I do think we have to figure out some area where he's brilliant. You know, the same way we always talk about with Guilfoyle, like Guilfoyle just keeps beating Dinesh. And Guilfoyle is kind of impervious. And I think we've always talked about it. I don't know if we found it yet, but we have to find sort of Guilfoyle's kryptonite. Where Where is the chink in his armor that somebody can exploit? Um, okay, well, look, I really appreciate your time. It's a great show. And it's oh, amazing. thanks so much. Thank yeah, you. No, it's really happy fun. To, happy to do it. That was Alec Berg. Thanks, Alec, for the great conversation. This has been Showrunners. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate us, tell all your friends to listen. Find us for next week's episode uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Nicholas Carlson, and thanks again for listening.